0: You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim.
1: Hey, Jeff. How are
0: you? Oh, not so bad yourself. I'm good. I was wondering, is it too late to say Happy New Year? You know, <laughs> I was on a conference call yesterday, and I feel like you know all last week it was Happy New Year, and this this was words of Williams. I, th- I think it was Brian that I was talking to. He's like, "Well, you know, I, I kind of said Happy New Year." I was like, wait, are we still doing that in the second year of the of the New Year? He's like, "Well, last week was a short week because most people had Monday off, so we're going to wow it as far as Monday. Now, what I don't know is if I'm going to do it today, Tuesday, or if we're just
1: kind of we've moved on. Yes, it's the new year. Um, let's just." Keep it as is. <laughs> yeah, and about think you? about this, right? We're recording in advance, so <laughs> if we say Happy New Year now, it really is dated by the time this goes live, and then by the time somebody maybe listens to it, it's like, you know, it could be the summer. I mean, who yeah, knows? Yeah, by, by the time
0: people listen to this, I think this will go out probably like January 23rd, episode 196, um, theoretically, unless something changes <laughs> behind the scenes, um, but yeah
1: it's tough to be timely on some of the stuff so we're getting close to 200 and i don't know Did we ever have a conversation about christmas gifts i think we did i think we touched on it right but one thing i didn't didn't mention is yeah that's right your sweet wallet i talked about my stickers um but i never talked about my chair and the reason i thought of it about it this morning is that you know i've been getting by for about a year with a squeaky chair And I bought a Herman Miller chair and I talked about it on the show before because I'm almost like embarrassed. I spent $1,600 US on a chair and this was before inflation. So it was an expensive chair. So that's like a 40 grand chair now. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I could trade it in for a BMW or something. Um, But, you know, the the issue with the chair was like it was squeaking. And I tried to hit it. it, Yeah, you know, (laughs) I tried hitting it with the WD 40. It didn't solve the problem. And what happened was I I contacted Herman Miller and it was under warranty. So get this, you know, rather than saying, well, what you need to do is X, Y, Z. They, um, used FedEx to send a box to my house. I put the chair inside the box. FedEx came, and picked up the box with the chair in it, brought it back to Herman Miller. They replaced the part that was squeaking. And now they're going to ship it back to me. Now, Good and bad. I mean, like, it's like, wow, like, they spared no expense to fix my darn chair. But, you know, I'm also without a chair for like two weeks while this is all happening. And it just kind of seems like an odd way to go about fixing the problem. Yeah, I guess, I guess,
0: advanced replacement, maybe that's something that I've done in the past for like, laptops or stuff like that, where they have kind of physical issues that can't be solved through software. Like you yeah. think, okay, send the chair and then take your, your chair and put it in the same box and then send that back would seem to me to make the most sense. Laptops are kind of small. Chairs yeah. are big. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I I treated myself to a chair as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so uh, anyway, I'm excited about the New Year kicking off. Um, really looking forward to the conferences. I mean, we talk about this every week, but I want to get the word out and get people thinking about like setting their conference schedule or agenda for the year um i think you know anyone who follows us on linkedin realizes by now you and i are are co-hosting a session along with henrique um you know and becky from gartner uh that's going to be during the gartner conference gartner i am summit in grapevine texas march 20th through 22nd i'm not even sure exactly what day are session is within that that range but certainly it'll happen within that range and we are super excited about that yeah we'll have 30 minutes somewhere in there to uh bring the identity at the
0: center show to the gartner stage which is a very cool um i think at some point we're gonna start start to crowdsource some questions here from our audience and see what we want to do about you know we're gonna have an opportunity to really grill henrique and becky so we can get tough and, uh, we can have a good conversation about it and, you know, maybe, and, and the goal is to have really something different than your normal sort of Gartner presentation or session or whatever it may be, especially if it's sort of like off to the side and it's not really like a keynote. So I'm hopeful that we'll have a very good time and it'll be a little bit of a different flavor and kind of be, I don't know if that's the right word, but like the, like the anti session, <laughs> if that yeah, makes
1: sense, right. compared to sort of the normal programming. You may okay. not learn anything, but hopefully you'll be entertained. <laughs> Like the unconference that was popular for a while, where it's like you show up and you have no idea what you're going to talk about. I don't think we'll do that, though. No, I I will have we'll have a good time with it. So we
0: got Gartner coming up. We've got the European Identity Conference. We talked to Martin uh, Kubinger um, a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, we've got uh, Identiverse coming up, so yeah, I think now is the time to get those budget requests in. <laughs> uh, try to point out that calendar and uh, you know see what you can do to to attend stuff like that. So it seems like it's very heavily front loaded this year for some reason. I know RSA is coming up as well in April, I think it is, or maybe it's May. Um, so I'm going to try and I think it is April actually. So I'm going to try and hit that as I kind of usually do. Um, but
1: yeah, I put it's going to be I a put a bug in. Half. I put a bug in Daniel's here. Uh, Daniel is our partner within RSM who Jeff and I both report to, and you know, I uh, I take the lead on kind of like trying to help put together the strategy for external marketing. So that includes like conferences. So I'm like, let's let's all go to RSA. <laughs> Obviously, it's not like an endless budget for going to conferences, but it's a fantastic opportunity to to network and know what's going on within the industry. So I mean. It, it's dollars well invested, but, you know, it gets expensive after a while, especially with all the, the travel and entertainment that goes along with it. Yeah. So
0: we don't do normal commercials for ourselves. But, yeah, if you need identity consulting, come talk to Jim and I. <laughs> that helps us get to conferences, which means we can bring the Identity Center podcast to those conferences typically and do some sort of, you know, on, on location recording. So uh, shameless plug there. Um, anything else coming up that we want to get to or should we uh, get to our guest?
1: Why don't we get to our guest? I don't want to like you know eat up all of our time with our banter, <laughs> yeah, our our our
0: mindless banter. Let's talk with Mickey Badai. He's the CEO and co-founder of
2: Transmit Security. Welcome to the show, Mickey. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jim. It's great being here. Actually, like listening to your um, opening statement, um, you know, first of all, like I'm sitting on probably the most uncomfortable chair that was ever built. Uh, but it's part of the office design, and the designer is my wife. So, uh, you know, I'm stuck with this chair, uh, but I kind of, like, uh, learned to uh, to like it. Um, you know, the, the other thing that you've mentioned is uh, the Gartner Conference, which is obviously a great conference, and this is probably, um, you know, a good opportunity for us to... Um, Introduce David Maddie, who was uh, previously a uh, Gartner identity and access management analyst, uh, who is just joined uh, Transmit, and he's starting in about a week. So I think by the time that this is going to air, he'll be uh, you know part of our team. And lastly, you mentioned RSA, which is very funny, but uh, like I, the first RSA I attended, the first conference was in 1993, I believe which was oh probably one of the first RSA uh, conferences ever. It was so tiny back then. And, uh, you know, I think the last one I I, I actually, uh, uh, you know, attended was uh, about like, you know, just, just before COVID. And it was so huge, like, you know, this one. And I keep kind of like um, looking at the RSA conferences, I kind of like, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how the entire industry of cybersecurity has evolved since like, you know, the early 90s to, uh, you know, these days. It's pretty amazing. Well, it keeps growing and growing. You mentioned
0: RSA being so small, and now it's this huge thing. I think it's something like 20 or 30,000 people sort of all descend into downtown San Francisco. And yeah, I was there at the same one right before sort of the pandemic sort of hit. It was like right at the very, very beginning. And I remember getting that notification it was like, Hey, someone was at the conference and there was, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, an infection. So that was sort of like, I think the, the closing ceremonies for the conference circuit. <laughs> and then it kind of reopened yeah. maybe like around this time last year when I was at RSA last year as well. And it felt like it was, there was excitement. I think, I think people were kind of like, okay, we've been cooped up for a couple of years now. Let's kind of get out there and, you know,
2: uh, yeah, I see that all over. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Like, and everything is getting back to normal. Like, even China is getting back to normal. You know, like, that's, that's a big event. Yeah. So I want to touch on something you
0: mentioned. You mentioned about your uncomfortable chair, and that's sort of like the office design. And I got to ask a question. So if your wife designed the office and the chair is uncomfortable, is that so that it's like forces you to like stand up, move around, not stay at the office all day? you know, come home or was, is that like a subtle nod to like, Hey, you can't work 24 hours
2: a day. Let's, let's do other things too. Uh, Look, it's, it's, uh, it's probably the cheapest chair that, uh, you could imagine, but it goes well with the, uh, you know, the core of the office, like the entire design. So it's all about how it looks rather than, uh, you know, um, how it feels. But, um, yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm um, mostly when I'm in the office, I'm, uh, you know, moving around between meetings. So, you know, this, this is probably going to be the longest that I s- I'm sitting on this chair today. Um, so, you know, well, let's keep on, on pace here. So your back thinks us later or doesn't blame
0: us later. Anyway, um, this is the first time you've been on a show with us. And one of the things we like to do when we talk with new guests is really kind of find a little bit about their identity background and how they got sort of into the InfoSec space and identity at large. Can you take us through sort of your journey from, uh, you know, the beginning? How did you get into identity? And I don't think we need the whole Wikipedia entry, but maybe something that kind of explains, you know, here's the context that you're coming from, because obviously you've you started up a couple companies now at this point, uh, and now you're a transmit security. I'm just curious if if something is, is identity, something that you chose or did
2: it choose you? All right. So, uh, you know, this story goes back to when I was 18 years old. I'm 50 now. Um, so as you probably know, in Israel we have like mandatory uh, military service, and uh, you start that when you're 18. So I, I joined the military when I was 18, um, and, and as part of like the process, I was screened for um, a cybersecurity unit in the uh, in the military. Um, I, I then went to learn computer engineering, and the first thing that uh, I was assigned to when, um, you know, my first day in uh, in the unit was uh, this, like, huge book. Um, and this book was uh, Rackets. For those of you who know that, it's, like, the access control system for mainframes. Um, so, like, you know, for uh, I remember that for a month, I was, like, you know, reading the book, trying to figure out what's going on there. Um, so this is mostly identity access management. And then my first project in the military was uh, implementing Rakif like uh, kind of like concepts on Unix systems, right? This was like, you know, before Linux, it was like Unix systems. Um, so since then, I moved between like different disciplines of cybersecurity uh, in the military, uh, firewalls, intrusion detection systems, data security, and then uh, right at that, like the last two years was around application security, uh, web security. Um, so when I got out of the military, uh, the first thing I did was, uh, starting, um, you know, a company around, um, application security. And this kind of like started my, uh, my way as an uh, entrepreneur, but, uh, yeah. So identity was the first thing I, I ever touched in my career. And it's it's a rough entrance, RACF. Uh, I remember that
0: back in the early 2000s, I guess would have been for me uh, administrating RACF uh, access for for that. Not my most favorite thing to do in the world. <laughs> no, not at all.
2: Like, yeah, took me a while to get back to identity. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so those for for those not familiar with Transmit Security, I guess help. Um, you know, for the folks who are listening out there, what's the thirty second or sixty second elevator pitch for what Transmit Security
2: does? Right. Uh, So transit security provides end to end customer identity services, mainly for large enterprises. So our customers are like, you know, Citibank, HSBC, JP Morgan, uh, Rogers, a lot of these uh, large giants. And um, the services include user management, authorization, advanced advanced authentication, risk, trust, and fraud, identity document verification, identity orchestration, so pretty much anything around customer um, identity. And what's unique about us is that we're experts in cybersecurity. So our platform is built ground up for enterprises who want to keep secure yet move very, very fast in terms of their identity journey. So we're gonna get probably to talk a little bit more about the, the CIM
0: uh, aspect here, especially around the risk. I was reading an article where you were mentioned in it and it mentioned, it, I think there was a quote and maybe it can kind of help me understand the context of this was you mentioned being kind of thought of as, or at least the goal was to be the Google or meta of personal security in the digital world. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Or maybe there was context that was missing from the conversation?
2: Well, yeah. Thanks for uh, for this question, Jeff. It's uh, it's a good opportunity to clarify. But um, uh, I, 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 I'm not comparing ourselves to Google or Meta. But, but what, what I'm like saying is that I'm inspired by the way they build their brand. So, for example, with Google, right? It's like googling um, is 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 a term, right? It's like you know you're not searching the web. Um, So, you know, the way that you think about Google is Google is search and search is Google. So for me to kind of like set goals for transmit security uh, around identity, what I really want to happen eventually is that uh, large enterprises, when they think about their customer identity, they think about transmit security. Um, so that's kind of like the way I present it to you know everyone who wants to l- listen to the
0: vision. Well, you picked a good name in Transmit, because you think about it, I was like, okay, well, we're transmitting our identity, we're Transmit Security, so I'm not going to do your marketing for you, you definitely don't want that, <laughs> but uh, you, uh, I think the name <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: You're based in Israel, and you know been very gracious with your time with us, and I'm curious, because we talk with a, a lot of folks in the InfoSec space, and it seems like Israel is such a hotbed for different cybersecurity startups and things like that. I guess why is that? What you know, what is the the culture there, or whatever other you know winds kind of
2: that, that help with that? Right. Um, so I think it's it's a combination of probably two main um, main things. The first one would be the uh, the military. So as I said, like you know, we have a mandatory military service. Which means that everyone at the age of eighteen goes to the military, and then in the military, uh, the different units uh, just decide uh, where you go. So you know, some of them become pilots. Uh, you know, they, they, they you know they want to, but also the military needs to uh, to decide that you know this is um, you know a good uh, fit for them. Uh, but then, like you know, cyber security units within the technical units are um, you know, typically the most prestigious, uh, units in the military and they get to pick their talent first. So if you think about it, the entire talent that we have in Israel, um, the cybersecurity military, uh, get to, um, to choose the ones that they want. Um, uh, so everyone goes there like, you know, the best talents. And then in the military, you really get, uh, an opportunity to work on projects that you would never get a chance to work on in your civilian life. Right, the things that we do in the military are like you know, almost uncomparable to uh, you know what private companies are doing. Uh, So you get like a lot of experience very, very fast. Uh, Definitely for someone who is a junior developer or a junior researcher, uh, they will never get the chance to do that in in any other part of the world. So, uh, you know, military service could be anywhere between like, you know, three years to six years. This is is like where most people, most engineers um, end up. Uh, so after like, you know, four five, six years in the military with a, a lot of experience, uh, you know, these guys just uh, go out and start their uh, civilian career. And typically what they want to do is to keep on doing the things that they're good at, which is cybersecurity. Um, so uh, you see a lot of cybersecurity startups in Israel. You see a lot of, uh, big companies that, um, you know, are in cybersecurity. So, um, you know, I think it's kind of like culture right now in Israel, where you see most
1: of the technical talent uh, going into cyber. So, Mickey, we, uh, I mean, Transmit has been around for quite a while. I mean, the buzz, I think, lately that I've heard is really, you know, passwordless for customer identity and access management. I mean, that's you know, probably if somebody asked me what transmit does, that's where my mind would go right away. But early on, it was a focus on orchestration and orchestration can mean different things to be different people. Like for example, we had Jerry Gable on the show in November, uh, talking about what they're doing over at shot up and, and they're doing orchestration. It's quite different. I'd encourage anybody who's listening, who's interested to understand the difference to go back and listen to that episode. Um, but, you know, I think the orchestration that Transmit was uh, focused on early on and probably you know, still makes up a, a big part of the stack is what we call security orchestration and automated response or SOAR as kind of a product area. Is that what am I getting that right or is it something else? It's it's not exactly that. But like, you know, to to really understand what uh, yeah,
2: identity orchestration is, um, it's, it's, it's better to understand like, you know, kind of like the history and where we come from. Um, so at around 2007, my co-founder, Rakesh Lunkar and myself, we, uh, we started a company called Trusteer. Now, Trusteer was eventually got acquired by IBM and is now part of IBM security. But what we did there is like we identified very early on that uh, the next big thing in terms of attacks against um, organizations and specifically financial institutions is going to be uh, malware and financial malware. Now, this was even before financial malware was even invented. Um and that was probably a year, year and a half before the first one, like Zeus was invented. Uh so we started a company, we started building like, you know, the defenses around it. And uh, you know, then when uh, the actual um um you know, let's say the uh, uh the the actual attacks against banks uh started to happen, um, you know, like um Organizations were looking for uh, solutions, and this is where we basically came in with the ability to identify um, fraudsters and um, um, you know that that are uh, leveraging uh, malware against um, banks, consumers, and be able to um, alert to the bank that, for example, a certain uh, consumer who is now uh, trying to bank online is infected with uh, a financial malware that could eventually uh, steal credentials or, you know, make transactions and things like that. So the signal was very strong and, um, you know, was, we were very successful with that. But as we kind of like wanted to build that into um, mitigation controls, okay, like, you know, you get a signal, you understand that there is something bad happening, how do you stop it? right? The way to stop it is through perhaps stronger authentication or restricted access. So these are kind of like, you know, what you want to to do as actions. Because when when you look at consumer identity, right, it's different than workforce identity because you still need to, like, allow your consumers to, to log in and do stuff. So you can't just keep blocking people uh, based on, uh, you know, all these signals. And we're talking about millions, sometimes of tens of millions of users uh, per organization or per application. So to automate all that, we had to kind of like blend our signals with authentication actions and authorization actions. And we wanted to uh, to do that. But, uh, you know, based on the architectures that our customers add back then, it was really, really hard to do. Like, how do you blend their IAM stack into the signals that we're giving them and change the authentication on the fly based on these signals? So it could be like, okay, when the user comes to transact or do something, um, during the session, you need to challenge them. Uh, just because you're C, you're picking up different signals. Or when the user is opening an account during the process, you want to change um, the experience and introduce more friction because you're picking up uh, these signals. And it was impossible to do. So it it was like, okay, we need uh, to do a lot of coding in the application. And these are very difficult applications to touch. And these are very sensitive places to touch and like... You know, you need to bypass uh, the entire um, IAM architecture to do that. So, uh, you know, for years, uh, I think like three or four years that we we actually tried to implement this um, concept, it was impossible for us to do it. Um, so eventually what we decided to do is we want to uh, start a new company where we can glue together um, all sorts of signals about risk with authentication, with authorization, in a very easy way for the application. So think about it as kind of like an abstraction layer that sits between the application and the IEM stack. And most organizations, they have a lot of solutions in uh, IEM. So we sit in between and we can take uh, uh, the signals and then operate the different actions like, okay, you need to do this type of authentication or we need to restrict your access to uh, specific parts of the, uh, of the application. So this is how the concept was born. And when we started to present the concept to customers and to, um, to analysts, um, you know, I think David was like, you know, the, uh, the analyst that I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, they came up with the uh, kind of like the category of identity orchestration okay so this is like you know you're orchestrating uh, the entire IAM stack um, and this
1: is how it all started yeah that's really interesting and you mentioned a couple of key terms I want to pick on but overall the impression that I'm getting is really you know this is all comes back to risk and gauging the risk of the authentication event and Let's be frank, um, different organizations, different industries have a different tolerance for risk. You mentioned, you know, if you're in the customer identity, you don't want to just keep sending people away because they represent some level of risk. You know, as a workforce, people are going to keep trying until they get in, right? For whatever reason, they'll call the help desk. But if it's somebody wants to buy a sweater or sign up for a cell phone service or transact with their bank, those are three different levels of risk, and they probably want to turn people away based on different levels. Um, I want to make sure I'm getting that right, and then talk to me a little bit about how these signals that you talk about, well, what are some of the examples of signals, and how does that play into determining that risk? Yeah, so
2: first of all, you're uh, you know absolutely right that uh, different verticals Have different tolerance to, uh, to risk and, um, you know, account takeover in general. Um, so, uh, traditionally, uh, the financial sector was much more sensitive or is much more sensitive to, uh, to risk. And this is why you see like all the controls and much better or stronger authentication processes with financial institutions than you see, for example, with retail. But even um you know with retail what we're seeing recently is that there are two main reasons why they're starting to look at that uh, more seriously the first one is customer experience um so think about like you know your account um you know getting hacked or you know your credentials are stolen someone gets into your account with a certain retailer you start getting, like, you know, these emails about, like, is it you? Is it not you? Do you want to stop it? Uh, we had a breach. We had something. So it's like it, it there is damage to the brand. And this is something that they want to, uh, to avoid. And the frequency and the kind of, like, um, you know, the amount of attacks that they're seeing today in retail is not comparable to what they used to see. Uh, probably five, six, seven years ago. So as this increases, uh, they're starting to look at this more seriously to uh, you know improve their uh, their brand and like you know their entire operational um, you know cost. Um, but um, you know, like in, in terms of the attacks themselves, um, it's it's a lot about um, you know account takeover. Um, so account takeover, typically, you would see. Um, You know, someone like they're they're kind of like typical ways of uh, doing account takeover. So we're reading a lot about data breaches, right? It's like almost on a daily basis that we're seeing even the, you know, the biggest brands uh, being breached and like, you know, customer data um, is going out and, uh, you know, is publicly available um, in the dark web. And what crim- cyber criminals are doing is just like you know downloading this data and uh you know starting to to do things like credential stuffing, which is for those of you who don't know, it's like you know, you're taking a database of uh usernames, like typically email addresses and their passwords uh from a specific website and then you go and try the same credentials with other websites. And the assumption is that uh, customers are reusing their credentials across multiple websites, which is typically a correct assumption. And so they go and just try these uh, across multiple um, uh, applications uh, with huge databases of, of customers, and they're able to Um, you know, get into your your account, even though you did nothing wrong other than using the same password across uh, multiple applications. So this is one attack vector, for example. Uh, The other would be uh, another one, which is very interesting, would be social engineering. And this is something that we're seeing more and more. Uh, which is like, you know, someone calls you uh, pretending to be your, uh, you know, uh, someone from the bank or someone from uh, law enforcement agencies or, you know, even your telco provider. And they tell you a story that you believe eventually that you need to do something. And this something could be, uh, you know, as, as bad as like, you need to move money from your account to this account because... Uh, you know, this is a, a backup account, uh, and something happened, and for a security reason, you need to do that. It really, it really depends on the creativity of the, um, you know, of the attacker, of cyber criminals, and they're quite successful in that. So obviously, the more practice they get, the better they become in telling these stories and finding the right victims for it. So this would be like you know a couple of the um, you know attacks that we're seeing uh, today. Also, you know, you're seeing things that are um, more geared toward uh, bypassing two-factor authentication. Uh, so it, it you know this is funny like you know when t- two-factor authentication is kind of like you know recent in terms of uh, the the adaption rate of two-factor authentication, even though it's been with us for many many years. Only, you know, probably in the last uh, five years or so, we're starting to see organizations uh, really adapting two-factor authentication, uh, and typically with an OTP, uh, typically over, uh, you know, SMS or email or, you know, a specific application to do that. And, uh, you know, as soon as, um, you know, fraudsters realize that, um, you know, this this is what organizations are doing, Uh, they immediately came up with men in the middle attacks. Like, you know, it's not like they invented it, right? Like these attack vectors, I can tell you that, you know, we've been experimenting with them like 20 years ago. Uh, so everything was known. But like, you know, sometimes like the motion is, uh, it's like always like, you know, for me, it's like you're, you're watching uh, something in, in, in slow motion, right? It's like when you're watching something in slow motion, you know what's going to come next uh, because you get like a lot of time to think. Uh, so with, uh, you know, for example, with two-factor authentication, it was pretty obvious that as soon as everyone is, you know, starts to adopt it, uh, you know, fraudsters will be able to bypass it very easily. So we're seeing a lot, kind of like man in the middle phishing websites, where like you know the the uh, phishing website asks you for the um, the OTP code, and then the fraudster goes and completes that. And a slightly more advanced uh, attack would be a SIM swap, which is becoming easier to do now with eSIM um, and the fact that you don't need like a physical SIM to uh, to pretend to be um, you know to, to to take over a different uh, phone number. Um, so the, uh, the actual mobile operators are being a uh, part or, or being,
1: uh, you know, a step in the attack itself. So we're seeing a lot of that, typically. Yeah, you hear a lot about the evolving threat landscape. And I think evolving may or may not be the right word, but evolving to me is like, it's not revolution, right? There's not a whole different set of, you know, from year to year how these threats are manifesting. It's interesting. Every time you look at one of these reports of, hey, let's recap the year, the data breaches that have occurred, it's phishing, it's social engineering. It's like the most common denominator. And it, it's kind of sad that it always kind of seems to boil back to those those basics. But it, it's interesting because I was thinking as you are talking, there's you know, if we just want to super simplify it, there's really kind of two types of actors. There's the the, um, the single actor that you talked about. That's got to be the harder one to stop, right? Because now maybe they're, they're hitting it from a normal browser. They've got a regular IP address. It might be out, you know, the, they, they probably have some shadow of doubt behind them, but they're probably harder to detect the other type, the other bucket is the campaign. It's we just downloaded 50,000 accounts from the dark web, and now we're going to try to hammer every website. And you can do, uh, uh, they really have a shadow behind them, right? Maybe it's the same IP address. Maybe it's a thousand login attempts per minute. Um, talk to me a little bit about those kind of scenarios because I think that that's what the signaling is all about right it's identifying or detecting that hey this is a malicious actor or you know a campaign that's going on right so you know with
2: with campaigns it 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 all comes to automation when you want to uh, do something like a thousand times ten thousand times sometimes millions of times against a specific application or cross-applications, websites, you need good automation. And, uh, you know, the signals that you want to pick um, during the, um, you know, the detection phase are all around uh, automation. So you mentioned, um, you know, frequency, you mentioned, um, you know, the ability to understand that, you know, perhaps they're coming from the same IP address, I would say that like you know they're much smarter today than you know than than just that. So like you know these uh, kind of like basic signals are not enough to detect these campaigns. What you actually need to understand is how automation tools uh, work. Um so you need to like you know uh, map the different automation tools that are available to cyber criminals. Uh, you need to research them. You need to figure out how do you identify the specific behavior of each one of these tools um, and build kind of like you know the right um, you know the right uh, detection uh, capabilities for these. So it involves uh, you know if you think about it, it involves uh, two parts. The first part is more around threat intelligence. How do you keep up with uh, the cyber uh, criminal community and everything they do? Because almost none of them is like you know making their own uh, tools or building their own uh, technologies. They all reuse, buy from each other, and use kind of like you know the same um, uh, uh, tools. And uh, you know, so this would be the first. The second is like, okay, we need to analyze uh, all that and build the right. Um, ability or build the ability to uh, detect these signals as uh, the tools are being used against uh, you know a specific application, specific website. So these are kind of like you know the two parts there. So this is around automation. When it goes to uh, single uh, attackers, um, it is much harder to do than uh, just detecting automation. But uh, again. It, it involves a lot of um, understanding of how these cyber criminals, how these fraudsters operate, how they think, what are they going to look for and which tools they're going to use. And eventually, uh, the tactics that they're using are very similar across cyber criminals and across regions around the world. So, uh, you know, once you, once you understand that, uh, and you know how to build the uh, kind of like the right detection mechanisms around it. What, what are the things that you need to profile? What are the, the things that would trigger an anomaly? How do you connect different anomalies together and understand that they're a part of an actual attack as, a, as, as opposed to just, uh, you know, false, uh, false positives? Uh, then, then you get a
1: chance to, um, you know, detect
2: and stop the, uh, the real attacks.
1: Yeah, just an observation that I mean this is everything you just mentioned. I, I, I'm sure all of our listeners are thinking the same thing, which is that, you know, this would for an individual company to kind of build these capabilities, as threat intelligence. It's just something that um, doesn't make sense to try to build your own. I think, you know, my early days of IT, that was the question, like build versus buy. Today it seems like you can bypass that and go right to which one do we buy? Because everything you just laid out unless you are not even a tech company. To me if you're a tech company, you still need to buy unless you want to become an authentication company. Now, if you're an authentication company, then yeah, maybe it's build versus buy, but you know, to me this model of relying on especially when you're talking about the threat intelligence, the intelligence is built across hundreds or thousands of customers and th- and seeing these signals repeat themselves and building into the, you know, the Borg of understanding of what a, what an attack looks like, because it's, like you said, it's not the basics. It's not, oh, you're just, you know, we're getting a thousand hits from one IP address. Obviously that's how I simplified it, but it's that the attackers already know that that's getting us knocked down. So how do we, get around that you know they're they're trying to stay one step ahead the uh authentication companies like transmit trying to stay one step ahead so it's a it's a constant battle if you're not in that business why would you want to be in that business
2: yeah exactly and uh look it's 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 a very big operation like you know for transmit we have around 200 to close to 250 people um you know talents uh, that specialize in you know this type of attack vectors and this is what they do all day long so you look at a typical organization even a very large organization they uh, you know they may have people who know how to do some of this stuff but uh you know it, it doesn't scale to like you know hundreds of people which is what they actually need to provide you know very good uh, protection so eventually you would see even um, you know even even um, enterprises with a very good talent um, they would go and uh, you know buy technologies from companies like Transmit that specialize in uh, in, in fraud identity uh, because this is something that is very hard to uh, to build yourself. Unlike for example other parts of um, you know identity such as like you know building a user store. You know, you can build your user store yourself or you can, uh, you know, you can buy it. It's really a question of what's, what is easier for you, what is cheaper, what is faster. Uh, you know, and each one of the, um, you know, each customer has their own um, kind of like uh, priorities around it. But when, when it comes to risk fraud, actual security technologies, um, you know, it's very, very hard to build it yourself. And the, the other part that we're seeing that is also kind of like uh, similar to it is when it comes to uh, account opening in highly regulated um, markets, such as the financial market. So you, you get a lot of like, you know, document scanning and things like that. Uh, which are really, uh, you know, to prevent fraud, account opening fraud, uh, where someone is pretending to be like, you know, Jim or Jeff and trying to open an account on your behalf. Like, this is a typical attack, right? Like, if I convince uh, the bank that, you know, I'm Jim, and uh, they open an account for Jim, and then, like, you know, I, I do some basic stuff in the account, and then I take, like, a 50K loan, and I disappear, uh, the bank is going to go after Jim, uh, is not going to go after uh, after me, right?
1: It's like, so... Um, well, even, yeah, um, so in the US, we, you know, the big regulation is anti-money laundering, AML. The idea is right. like, okay, I'm making cash through some illegal business, and I'm laundering it by trying to make it legal dollars at this point and put it into a bank account, so... It, you know, obviously, if you take fifty thousand dollars and run away, you make fifty thousand dollars. But if you're taking millions of dollars of cash from an illegal operation, and you know now making it legal by putting it into the system, paying taxes on it, things like that, um, yeah. So definitely, account opening is a is a major attack.
2: Yeah, and and as a major attack, like um, you know, attack vector, you need to like have very very good skills. Um, in, in, like your ability to actually detect and, uh, you know, detecting these attacks involve a lot of understanding on how these fraudsters operate, how they try to bypass the different controls that the banks put in place. So, uh, you know, this level of expertise is, uh, is very, very hard to uh, obtain. When we talk about build versus buy, I us go back
0: to, you know, a company, like let's just pick something fictional, hopefully. <laughs> Larry's Tire Shop, right? Do you want to be in the business of creating risk fraud technologies or do you want to focus on selling or, you know, installing tires, right? I think that's, that's the question I think a lot of, organizations they end up struggling with sometimes is like, okay, well, they started down this slippery slope of identity because you're totally right. You stole a little bit of my thunder. I was thinking, okay, well, there are probably certain components of identity that are, I won't say easy, but relatively easy to do on your own. You can stand up your own open LDAP and create an identity store. Maybe you can do some light provisioning through PowerShell and, and things like that if you're, you know, an Active Director or Azure or something like that. But I think the further you go to the right when it comes to maturity, Things like intelligence, risk, fraud, signals. There is no way that you would ever be able to compete against someone who does this day in, day out if you try to do it yourself. Even the largest companies in the world would struggle with this, I imagine. I mean, you're, you are you know, transmits working with a bunch of banks. Banks typically have a lot of cybersecurity budget and resources because, you know, they need to keep money secure and safe and do you know, the anti-money laundering, do the know your customer, right? All that stuff to make sure that things have the appropriate risk and protections around them. So I, I you know, I think about this from like, okay, well, we're going to go off and do it ourselves. Really? Is that really the business you want to be in? Because <laughs> I think you're biting yeah. off a little bit more, you can chew.
2: No, it definitely so- not, not something that, uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of, um, you know, the, uh, the, the organizations that we're seeing at least are trying to do themselves. Uh, you know, some of them are not trying to do this at all, which is which is okay. It depends really on the level of uh, you know risk and uh, the attacks that you're actually seeing. Um, you know, f- from my thirty something years in in um, in the space, I know that which is really funny. Like you know, you know that these attacks are going to come, but then like um, you know, organizations really. Uh, prefer to first see the loss, first see the uh, you know the problem, uh, first see themselves bleeding before they actually uh, you know buy a solution. And I remember, and this goes back like you know twenty something years ago when I was the uh, co-founder of Imperva, a web application uh, security company, and uh, you know we we kind of like you know were the first uh, to, to introduce the web application firewall concept. And one of the, uh, the first prospects we had was, was a bank. And, uh, you know, they knew, like, you know, most of our customers back then knew nothing about, uh, you know, application security, web application security. Um, and what we did back then is to do, like, penetration testing, application-level penetration testing to show them that a problem exists so they would buy, um, you know, our solution. So I remember this, like, you know, one bank in the US, uh, you know, it's, it's it wasn't a, a small bank, it was a pretty like, you know, a uh, big bank. And we we went there and we did like the penetration testing against the online banking application. And I think it was like within like one hour, we were able to get to the entire database of their uh, customers and like, you know, do transactions on behalf of customers. And their kind of like conclusion was, Okay. So we got like a couple of bugs in the application. We'll fix that. Thank you. We don't need any other control. <laughs> so, uh, you know, eventually, obviously all, all the banks today have a web application firewall and this is kind of like, you know, part of the standard, but, uh, I had to just demonstrate that until they actually start bleeding and that's true for, you know, I guess everyone, you, you don't go and just buy solutions.
0: Well, I think there's two types of people in the world. There's the ones that they get a cut and then they go buy a buy a bandage. And then there's others who have just, you know, a couple bandages laying around the house in case they get cut. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I know you've been really prejudiced with your time. I want to ask a question about passwordless because I feel like this is a question that comes up every year. You know, is this the year that the password dies? That's been, I think, something that's been happening for the last 10 years now. And, you know, Jim, you, I think you kind of coined this one of our previous episodes this year. It's like, is this the decade that passwords die? Because I feel like there is, you know, it's it's a freight train, right? We're talking about really changing the direction of one of the core principles or one of the core things that drives sort of security. It's the password. Is this Is this the year password dies? Is this the decade password dies? Is this the century password dies? I guess, where do you feel like we are in that journey to eventually, at some point, get rid of the password? So I
2: think, uh, you know, we need to, uh, you know, split the question into two different domains. The first one is uh, workforce, and the second one is consumers. When it comes to workforce, I think like, you know, even though uh, many of the projects that we've seen last year for passwordless were uh, in workforce um, or for the workforce, I think that it's going to take a while until we see the password dies um, you know in, in, in these environments. And the reason is legacy systems. So we got a lot of legacy systems in these environments, especially when it comes to large enterprises. And uh, you know, you go to a large enterprise and, and the amount of uh, systems they have that are like, you know, probably 15, 20 years old. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's huge, it's huge. And, you know, these systems do not support any passwordless uh, capabilities and they will not support any passwordless capabilities. Like you still have like, you know, organizations with AS400 and obviously mainframes and like, you know, so. It's going to take a while. You'll see, you'll see a mix of, uh, systems where you can go, um, you know, passwordless, definitely all the SaaS applications, everything that is in the cloud, uh, relatively easy to go passwordless. But, uh, you know, a lot of the on-prem stuff just, you know, it's, it's not going to go away that, that fast. Um, on the consumer side, actually, I'm, um, you know, much more uh, positive that we can uh, get rid of passwords relatively faster. And the reason is the, you know, first, uh, the readiness of the uh, the protocols, uh, the support that we're getting as an industry from um, Apple, Google, and Microsoft uh, with passkeys and, you know, the technologies that they're uh, building into the operating systems and the browsers. Um, and the fact that most of the endpoint devices, whether these are mobile devices, laptops, desktops, are now coming with support for uh, device biometrics, whether it's face recognition, fingerprint scanning, like they support all that. So, um, you know, and, and they support all that for, for the past uh, few years. So, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm much more bullish about that. I think that organizations that want to go passwordless uh, now could do this in uh, 2023. Um, and, um, uh, we'll, we'll start seeing like, you know, well, eventually it will be like, you know, you don't want to, um, stay behind, right. It's like, you don't want your customers to stand with passwords when all the other organizations are offering passwordless technologies. Uh, so, for example, like you know, Citibank, which is um, uh, a customer of ours, are now in a very big project to uh, um, deploy passwordless technology to like you know, 200 end users across the uh, across the globe, and we're seeing quite a few uh, large institutions doing uh, doing the same. So, I-, I think that like you know, second half of the year. We'll see many more projects around passwordless. I, I think that a lot of the organizations started to plan for passwordless last year, uh, continue to plan for passwordless this year. Uh, second half of the year, beginning of next year, are going to be, we'll see a very big uh, move toward passwordless on the consumer side.
0: Okay, so you heard it here first. The password dies per Mickey Budai. But no later than 2024. So we're going to hold you to that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I can tell that we're getting short on time because your background is getting slowly and slowly darker as the sun sets (laughs) over uh, Israel sky there, which is very cool. Um, I want to end on a lighter note. We were kind of talking um, before we hit record about, I think, our love of travel and restaurants and food sort of around the world and things like that is It's one of the things I think all three of us look forward to after a long day, especially after travel. And I want to ask each of you, give me like a small town restaurant or meal or some other sort of, you know, similar sort of um, activity like that, that you just really enjoyed. Or conversely, if you have a really memorable one that you just did not enjoy. (laughs) Because I think that's one of the things that really fascinates me specifically about travel is being able to visit all these different places. And, you know, I remember my first trip to New York City and it was like, you mean there's like this deli, like every other block and there's like this amazing food in there. And it was like nothing high end, but it was just good stuff. Uh, That's not my example, but I'll start with you, Mickey. Like, do you have an example of like a a really good small town restaurant, something, maybe something local to you or something you've, you've encountered in your travels? Wow, you you
2: mentioned travel and, you know, I've been traveling a lot for the past, like, you know, I don't know, like 20 something years. And, uh, you know, many of my trips were to, um, to the United States. And, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's a pretty long flight from Tel Aviv to Tel Aviv to New York is about, you know, between 10 and 12 hours. Um, so typically you get, um, you know, uh, you get there either late at night or very early in the morning. and I remember like, you know, a couple of times, so first of all, like, you know, for, for perhaps a decade, um, every time I got into uh, the States, I was like, you know, the first thing I, was do- I did was to go and get a burger uh, because like, you know, back then the burgers were uh, so much better than, uh, you know, the one that we had in Israel. Uh, you know, now we're, we're like, I, I think like, you know, we're very good at it as well. But, uh, you know, I remember this, like, you know, one time that uh, I landed in uh, Newark and um, I stayed at the hotel at one of the hotels in the um, in in the airport. It was like a pretty shitty hotel. Right. It's like, you know, something that, uh, you know, I would not uh, do right now. But back then, uh, you know, I was on a very tight budget and I stayed at that hotel and I went to like the hotel bar and I, I ordered a burger. And it was, I don't know why it was the best burger I had in my entire life, really. And then I have a similar story that, uh, you know, this one is from the Bay Area and, you know, very similar like shitty Hotel. Um, you know, I remember like, you know, being like, you know, it was a huge hotel that probably, um, you know, probably like I got a room there for, I don't know, like 60 bucks a night. And, uh, you know, I went to, uh, you know, went to the bar in the evening and I, I ordered uh, soup. And this was like, you know, the best soup I had in my entire life. And I don't know why, but uh, you know, these are the two things that I I remember for
1: like you know more than twenty years now. Jim, how about yourself? We got some memorable meals? Yeah, I mean, it's it's along the same lines as Mickey, right? Like when you start are still talking about a meal that you had years ago, or Mickey's case, decades ago. Uh, you it deserves mention. So there's a restaurant. In the Caesars. Like, this is not like, hey, this is a corner place and you can spend 20 bucks and get a good meal. No, this is $100 plus steaks, but the steaks are so good. So, Old Homestead in Caesars Palace. So, if you're going to, well, Gardner used to always hold their conferences there. So, I've been to Caesars a bunch of times. Anyway, this, you were there with me, Jeff. I sure was. And that, yeah, that Wagyu steak was just, perfect yeah (laughs) Yeah, and like it's like 120 bucks for a steak and they come out and it's a plate with a piece of meat on it nothing Mm -hmm. else right steak and a plate steak and a plate and Mm -hmm. but boy was it worth every penny yeah that was that was a darn
0: good meal and i think it was yeah i think it's it's not just the food it's usually the ambiance it's everything kind of goes around it that sort of forms that memory um and yeah i've got a few I'm thinking of another meal. It seems like there's a theme. Like Jim and I had that great steak. Uh, we went to a restaurant called Fang in San Francisco. It's a Chinese place um, next to Moscone Center, and I don't know what it was, but that was just darn good food, man. I mean, they come out with the fried rice. They do the whole like swirling scrambled egg right there at the at the table. I mean, the whole place. Stunk.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, it was like
0: we couldn't like see or breathe, but the food was really, really good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, what it was was the that scrambled egg mixture that they put down has some kind of pepper sauce in it, Mm -hmm. and when it heats up, it's like tear gas. Yeah, and you see, like the whole (laughs) the whole restaurant starts (laughs) coughing anytime someone orders fried rice because it's like tear gas throughout the place. So yeah, really strange, but excellent food. Yeah. And everybody orders it because it's like one of the uh,
0: one of the I guess the you know, specialties. Um, you know, the other one I was thinking about was this is not on my I guess this, this is travel, but not like exotic. I actually had to go into Charlotte, North Carolina, not too long ago uh, to um, work on some stuff. And I found this tiny little barbecue place in like this strip mall. It's called the Q Shack. It's like on the southeast side, kind of like past Matthews area for people who are familiar with it. And this is just a place that just doesn't look like anything like special. But I got to tell you, it might be the best barbecue I've ever had. I mean, it was fantastic. And I'm planning on going in there Thursday. <laughs> I have to go back uh, to Charlotte this week. So um, it's just one of those little things that kind of popped up. And I was like, oh, yeah, we'll just try it, you know, kind of there with my wife. And we walked out like super impressed, And it was just, you know, just a regular day. And it's like, okay, that was really good stuff so did
1: you put uh, a did uh, you put a review on
0: Yelp or anything I did um you know five stars and I was like this is this is
2: darn good stuff man <laughs> I have another story which is kind of like you know the opposite which I, I think was like also like you know probably 15 years ago uh Scottsdale, Arizona I was there in a conference and then like you know one of my um, sales guys uh you know told me like look there is um you know really really good uh, Mexican restaurant. Uh, it's just like, you know, 30 minutes drive from here. Let's go. You we have to go. And we went to this place and this was like, you know, hardcore Mexican, uh, restaurant, like, you know, only Mexicans there. And, uh, you know, they're, they're like, okay, we can serve you this hot or very, very hot. Uh, what do you prefer? I was like, you know, the least hot that you can make, that's good for me. And I couldn't take more than two sips. Right. It's like it was it was so hot. Like, you know, I was starting to sweat from places that I didn't even exist. And, uh, you know, people were looking at me and I was like, "Okay, (laughs) what do I do now? Uh, You know, I, I, I can still imagine that, like even 15 years later, it's like it was horrible. Yeah, you the know if it's hot tier-ish. when your feet sweat.
0: That <laughs> 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 reminds me, of, I mean, I, I could go on a couple of different things, but I had a chicken sandwich. We went out for burgers in Chennai about 10 years ago with a team I was working with out there. And, um, you know, I wasn't thinking at the time, and there, burger means chicken sandwich. I was like, okay, that's fine, right? No big deal. And this might be, it might have been liquid lava that was, <laughs> I took like one bite, and I was trying to be respectful and polite. And somebody, like I'm like, I'm really sorry, but if I eat those, I will die.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the funny thing is we were in Nashville recently, and now everything is like Nashville chicken. I mean, you get Nashville chicken anywhere in the United States. Yeah. The The other day, I was in the freezer section at the grocery store, and it was Nashville-style shrimp. I was like, I think you made that up. Anyway, you love Hattie B's, which is like the Nashville chicken spot. I like it, it. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, but you get... You don't get Miles. the natural. Yeah, yeah I, no, no.
0: It, you know, chicken's good. I, I don't like super spicy. There's a difference between spicy good and spicy just for the experience. Like, I want flavor. It, it, it's it's almost like that show, that, uh, Hot Ones, on uh, YouTube, which has gotten over, you know famous over the last several years. Like, there is a difference between, yeah, that's a little bit of spice. It, it amplifies and helps the flavor versus... This is a trial that I must pass to become a warrior of, of spice or whatever it may be, right? Like I'm not a fan. I'm like I'm not interested in becoming a warrior of spice. I want delicious, flavorful food. And I feel like there, a lot of places when they do the hot chicken is they just throw spice at it just to make it hot, and there's no flavor to it. It's just hot for hot sake, rather than trying to actually have a flavor, which bugs me. Yeah, that's I'm my soapbox. I'm that's, with you. <laughs> All right. Um, it is now dark outside of, of Mickey's window, so we're going to let him go. Um, Mickey, really appreciate the time that you spent with us here today. Uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of links in our show notes, you know, to connect with Mickey on LinkedIn if you've got questions, concerns, or if you want to maybe share a, a, a good or bad meal <laughs> that, that you've had. We'll have a link to transmit security as well. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap things up for this week. You can find us on the web, idacpodcast.com. or on Twitter, at IDACpodcasts. We're on Mastodon at IDAC podcast at infosec.exchange. Mastodon's got to get way easier <laughs> to, to, to take off. Um, Jim and I are on LinkedIn and uh, don't forget to subscribe and, and uh, you know, like the episodes and stuff like that. That way, you know, when new ones are coming out. So Mickey, thank you so much for your time and we'll talk with you all in the next one.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jim. Um. um Going to get some dinner right now, so I got really hungry. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Take care, all.
0: Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.